Welcome to Mysteries, Myths, and More. I'm your narrator, Joyce Keller Walsh. My intention is to use this podcast to tell a story each month, sometimes fiction, sometimes not, that I hope you'll find interesting, engaging, and provocative. Episode 1. I really debated how to begin this podcast. I had two stories in mind, one fiction, one nonfiction, one myth, one mystery, one serious, the other more fanciful. I switched them around back and forth in my mind until finally, at the last minute, I decided to do the following one. Why this choice? I guess because it introduces myself, it's meaningful to me, and because it's still a bit of a mystery. The title is, Whatever Happened to Tommy Johnson? Few of you may remember what discrimination was like back in the 1950s. If you haven't seen the movie Hidden Figures, I recommend it to you. Set in 1961 and 2, it portrays a surviving era of segregation, particularly, but by no means exclusively, in the South. Although the Supreme Court ruled in 1954 in Brown v. the Board of Education that racial segregation of children in public schools is unconstitutional, schools were still not entirely desegregated for many decades after. In fact, in April of 1959, was the second youth march on Washington for integrated schools. We, and yes, I was there among 25,000 others, assembled at the Washington Monument to hear Martin Luther King Jr. We thought after that that segregation was over. But it wasn't, of course. There was much more strife, civil discord, and bloodshed to follow. But this story, which is not fiction, takes place in 1953. Whatever happened to Tommy Johnson... One summer evening when I was 12, I roller skated around the town center, hand in hand with a boy I'd never seen before. I still have a memory of his hand in mine, dry and rough, not a large hand but larger than my own and with a strong grip. Or was that mine? I had never skated or even danced with a boy before. I was a shy young girl with unruly auburn hair and freckles, neither the prettiest in town nor the most gymnastic. So why did he choose me? For several years during the 1950s, our small town held block parties every Wednesday night through July and August, alternating weekly between dancing and skating to music while the streets were blocked off from traffic. Who organized this? Who chose the songs we listened to? Teresa Brewer, Music, 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 Patti Page, The Tennessee Waltz, Rosemary Clooney, Come On To My House, Tony Bennett, Because Of You, Perry Como, Don't let the stars get in your eyes. Who played the vinyl records through the loudspeakers? I never knew. We danced or skated without thinking about it. Our roller skates were simple metal wheels with metal soles and grips that clamped onto the bottom of our regular shoes, tightened by skate keys that looked like they'd wind a grandfather clock. We wore the keys on strings around our necks, lest we lose them and not be able to get our skates off without ruining our shoes. Usually, we'd skate on sidewalks in front of our modest houses, where the skate wheels would catch in the cracks. I don't remember how many times I fell on the uneven sidewalks, or how many knee scrapes I had from tipping off my skates, or before that, falling off my scooter, or before that, my tricycle. Scabbed knees were just part of childhood. Skating in wide circles around the center street in town, or dancing, usually girl with girl, was the only recreational event available to us in town back then. There was no pool, no such thing as a skate park. We didn't play basketball, soccer, 
softball, or any supervised sports. Of course, there were no computers, cell phones, video games, or barbecue. We're talking about some 65 years ago. Growing up in Secaucus, New Jersey, which was only a short bus ride through the Lincoln Tunnel from Manhattan, yet a thousand cultural miles away, we didn't feel part of the New York City megalopolis. We had no such things as high-rise apartment buildings. Only one of my friend's parents owned their own house. The rest rented one half of two family homes. In most streets, houses were so close together, they were only an alleyway apart. I lived with my parents in my grandmother's house on 2nd Avenue. We were on the first floor. She lived above, connected by a staircase from our kitchen up to her sitting room. There was no door, and my mother keenly felt the lack of privacy from her mother-in-law. Born in New York City, my grandmother bought her house as family lore went after she received a bequest from the estate of the renowned industrialist William Wrigley, Jr., of Wrigley Field fame, built in Chicago in 1914. My grandmother worked for many years for the Wrigley Company, counting pennies from the vending machines for Wrigley gum and hard candy in Manhattan subways. Supposedly, upon his death in 1932 or sometime thereafter, Grandma said all his employees were given a $2,000 bonus. Is that true? I don't know. Wrigley was a philanthropist and sympathetic to the working class. I've contacted the company about it, but received no response. It certainly correlates with the purchase of her house, and unlikely that she would have been able to save such an amount on her own for a down payment. The newly built house, as I recall her saying, cost $7,000. My clearest memories of my grandmother are of a small, plain woman, neither over nor underweight, who wore no makeup and wore everyday black dresses down to her black stockinged ankles and black tie shoes. When I came home from school, I'd shout hello from the bottom of the stairs and see her sitting by her front window reading her Bible. Occasionally, I played canasta with her or sat in her tiny kitchen while she made my favorite potato salad. I wish now I'd spent more time with her. I was her only granddaughter. She'd had a hard life. She divorced her husband sometime around 1910, a time when that was quite uncommon for a woman. He had abandoned her and his children, leaving my grandmother to raise their two young sons alone. With no alimony, she earned an income by taking whatever jobs an unskilled woman could in those days. My mother said that my paternal grandfather, after the divorce, changed his name from Theodore Keller to Kenneth Lernt, make of that what you will, that he remarried and had another family. My father and grandmother never spoke of him. I don't know why she chose Secaucus. There's so very much I don't know and no one alive now to ask. But it was probably on the crest of a migration wave out of the city and into the suburbs. Ours was the kind of small town that, when I was young, gave out free hot dogs to everyone on Independence Day. And the mayor would pick a third grader to recite the Gettysburg Address from the grassy slope in front of the town hall. One year, that was me. The population of our town in those days was less than 10,000 and almost exclusively white. There were no African-American students in any of my grade school classes, or any that I knew of in our town. Were they there but overlooked, or did they not care to live in such a colorless environment? The name Secaucus is derived from the Algonquian words for black, seke, or suket, and snake, achguk, or place of snakes, so called by the original indigenous, now absent Lenny Lenapis. At the southern end of town is Snake Hill. The official map name is Laurel Hill. 
I never saw a snake back then but once, and that is still engraved in my mind. It happened during the early construction of the Route 3 bypass to the New Jersey Turnpike, which was built through the Meadowlands just a short distance behind our house. A very large snake, which I believe was a northern black racer, disturbed in its natural habitat by the massive road construction, made its way into our garage one summer day. Although non-venomous, these snakes can bite when agitated, and they are very fast, hence the name racer. My grandmother, working in her small vegetable garden in the backyard, spotted it first and shooed me inside. I watched out my bedroom window as Grandma, armed with only a broom, chased the four-foot-long snake out of her garage into the garden and beyond. I remember thinking how fearless my grandmother was, strong and self-reliant, although in truth the snake was probably more frightened than she was. But I asked myself, in her place, would I have boldly confronted the snake and sent it on its way? No, I'd probably call my husband to do it. But then she didn't have a husband. Secaucus at its founding in the mid-1700s was largely agricultural, with flowers being the principal commodity. But even flower farming employed slaves back then. Slavery persisted until the last slave in New Jersey, John Jack Jackson, was manumitted before the Civil War in 1820 by Abel Smith, the Secaucus town founder. Jack Jackson declined to leave the Smith farm and resided there until he died in 1875 at age 87 after the Civil War was won. He was buried in the family plot. By the early 1900s, the major occupation in Secaucus had become pig farming and pig rendering, with the most famous pig farmer in the country being Henry B. Krajewski. Krajewski ran for president in 1952 on the poor man's party ticket against Republican Dwight D. Eisenhower and Democrat Adelaide Stevenson. Needless to say, he lost. Undaunted, he subsequently ran again for president, for senator, and for governor, rarely garnering more than a few thousand votes. His platform promoted three things, low graduated taxes, free milk for students, and, and this is what undid him, anti-corruption in a rather corrupt period in state history. I can visualize his truck driving up and down the Patterson Plank Road with a red, white, and blue A-frame sign reading Krajewski, even though he preferred the Polish pronunciation Krajewski. At one time, there was estimated to be about a quarter million pigs on some 55 farms in Secaucus. In warm weather, the stench from down the back road was so strong that we closed our windows against it, no matter how high the temperature reached and this was before air conditioning. The town's reputation as smelly Secaucus persisted even beyond the dwindling of the pig farms by the late 1950s. It became a national joke, thanks to then-popular radio and television host Arthur Godfrey of the TV show Arthur Godfrey and His Friends that lasted from 1949 to 1959. Godfrey was a native New Yorker, but lived for some years in the more affluent town of Hasbrook Heights, where Frank Sinatra also lived less than 10 miles north of Secaucus on Route 3. Godfrey was merciless in holding his nose and saying, P.U., whenever he spoke about driving past our town. It became for a long time embarrassing to admit where we lived. Now it's quite different, I understand. There are shopping outlets, the Meadowlands sports complex, TV stations, and even a high school. There was no high school when I grew up there, Consequently, we were bused to either one of the next two towns, Union City 
or Weehawken, site of the infamous Burr-Hamilton duel. I don't recall any black students in Weehawken High School at that time, or Hispanics, Asians, or other minorities. American movie stars in that era were predominantly white. John Wayne, Marilyn Monroe, Rock Hudson, Marlon Brando, Jimmy Stewart, among many others. And white audiences never seemed to question that. The few exceptions were Dorothy Dandridge, Sammy Davis Jr., and Sidney Poitier, who starred in The Defiant Ones in 1958. Most other African-American actors were cast in supporting or character roles. Most of the performers we watched on television in the 1950s, Lucille Ball, James Arness, Raymond Burr, Jack Webb, were white and male. The notable exceptions, singers Harry Belafonte, Lena Horne, and many of the popular doo-wop groups, such as the Ink Spots and the Mills Brothers, appeared on white-hosted talent programs, like The Ed Sullivan Show and The Jackie Gleason Show. When I was a senior in high school in the spring of 1958, my best friend Marie and I ditched school one day to take the subway up to Harlem to the Apollo Theater to hear those rhythm and blues groups. We sat through three showings of the music. I think we were the only two Caucasians in the audience, but that was uneventful. We had a wonderful time. I don't think we ever told our parents, not because we went to Harlem, but because we ditched school. American Bandstand, our favorite TV show beginning in 1952, hadn't yet integrated. The musical Hairspray, depicting that particular watershed event, was set 10 years later. The only African Americans I encountered as a child were in two distinct places. As silent fellow passengers on the New York City subway when my mother would take me to 14th Street to the discount clothing stores, and outside of Lakewood, New Jersey. Because my parents felt the need for a place of their own, they bought and built on a little bungalow in South Jersey in Cedarwood Park. It was close to Point Pleasant, but several miles inland, neither on the ocean nor on Barnegat Bay. We didn't have running water there until I was much older, but rather relied on an outdoor pump and then, huzzah, an indoor pump for water, unheated, of course. There was no electricity or heating in our bungalow other than portable kerosene heaters. At night, we used thunder jugs, which we'd empty into the outhouse in the morning, which my mother scrupulously limed against the odor. It wasn't all that different from camping. My father would stop at the ice house on the way to the bungalow and wrap the block of ice in burlap, tie it to the front bumper of the car, and deposit it into the ice box to last the weekend. It would melt into a drip pan, but keep the few perishables cool enough for a couple of days. To get to the ice house, we would drive through Lakewood, in those days a popular vacation town with numerous resort hotels. Wealthy visitors from New York and beyond would spend pampered summers by the pools. It wasn't unusual to see well-coiffed women in their one-piece bathing suits lying on lounge chairs with some sort of aluminum mirror up to their chins in order to tan their necks and jowls. My earliest memory of driving through Lakewood was that of emerging out the other side of town onto a dirt road lined with ramshackle wooden hovels. Bone-thin African-American men and women sat on their front steps regarding us without expression, and barefoot little children stopped playing ball and froze in place as we drove by. Who are these people? I asked my parents. They're hotel workers, my mother answered. But why do they live here instead of the hotels? This is where the hotels put them. No further discussion. I never heard anyone in my family say anything that could be construed as racist. But I never heard anything about it at all. Was it something they even thought about? Possibly not. In some unconscious way, however, 
I must have assimilated these experiences and been influenced by them. So when Tommy Johnson, a young African-American boy, asked me to skate with him, it seemed quite natural. I never hesitated. What is perhaps worse, I never gave it a second thought, although I should have. We skated on the street around the square like a carousel with skaters in front of and behind us. I don't recall what music was playing or whether we talked or even how many times we circled holding hands. At some point, he must have told me his name. Did I tell him mine? When the song was over, he left me on the sidewalk where he found me and disappeared. For the following weeks, I looked for him to come back, but he didn't. As time passed, I forgot about the incident until a recent conversation over lunch with a friend when I told her the story. I know her to be a well-educated, inclusive person, so I was surprised at her reaction. At that age, in that era, she said, I would have run in the other direction if a black man asked me to skate. I'd have been afraid. Why weren't you? I don't know. It didn't occur to me. You were very brave, she said. And for a split second, I was a bit pleased with myself. Perhaps I was a little brave. But then it struck me like something had rammed into my chest at high velocity. No, not me. He was the brave one. I've since tried to look him up, but his name, Tommy or Thomas Johnson, is very common, and I don't even know if he's still alive. Nor do I know if he came to grief for skating with me that evening. And is that why he didn't come back? Think of it the only African-American young man in a crowd of white skaters and white onlookers asked a white girl to skate, and they held hands. And it was 1953, two years before a 14-year-old African-American boy, Emmett Till, is savagely tortured and murdered in Mississippi for supposedly whistling at a white woman. At trial, the defendants, the husband and brother of the woman, are found not guilty by the all-white jury. One year later, protected by double jeopardy laws, the two men admitted in a Look magazine article that they had done it. Yes, that was Mississippi and this was New Jersey, but it was still 10 years before the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. So whatever prompted Tommy Johnson to ask me to skate with him, whether truth or dare, he was courageous. The end. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll come back next month to hear a story in a different vein, entitled Penelope's Tapestry, Episode 2.